days or a few weeks or so up, up and coming, let you know what that's going to look like. Um, but what I want to do right now is I want to look at the scriptures. So if you guys look at Luke chapter 10, again, we've been just taking a look at several different scriptures that kind of address this larger subject. We'll look at Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 36, the very familiar uh, parable that Jesus tells called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, most of you probably are somewhat familiar with it. In fact, I have a little uh, image up here, a picture from Van Gogh that he painted. And if you are familiar with his work, he's, he's, he's a master, he's a genius. Uh, this was actually painted in the last year of his life. He was in an insane asylum and people had cast him off in the margin of society. Just, they literally called him the crazy red hair man guy. Point of the matter is uh, he was basically cast off and, and people just dismissed him as a crazy guy. Um, but he painted, uh, replicas. In fact, uh, I can't remember the name of, oh my gosh. Anyways, I'm going to blank on it, but I'm not going to try to go down that path, but he painted this and it was a replica of another famous painter, which I'm, his name is escaping me right now. But the point of the matter is, is he saw himself in this image, in his painting. Uh, it's a really important parable of Jesus and it will play into not only today's message as we look at the subject of justice and particularly the fifth facet that we've looked at so uh, if you're just jumping in here today as a church gathering uh, I would highly recommend going back uh, at least three to four weeks and listening to our previous topics and teachings on this because it's the fifth facet of the subject of justice that we've been looking at for the past several weeks so that being said, uh, what we will look at today in this passage will not only play into today's teaching, but will also set the groundwork for next week's teaching, which we will look at the subject of a neighborliness or neighborly kindness, because we truly believe that part and parcel of what it means to actually have the gospel as center in matters of race, justice, and humanity is us learning as to what it truly means to be neighbors. And I don't just simply mean, you know, giving a cup of sugar to the old lady that you don't even know her name next door. It's way deeper, way bigger than just that. And uh, it's one of those things I think in our culture, we just seldomly think about. But in order for us to truly embody the gospel, uh, we, we need to understand what this looks like. So uh, with that being said, I want to read the passage and then we will jump in. We'll give a little bit of a definition. I'll give some biblical examples. And then I will actually end with an acrostic. You're welcome. Some of you are like, I hope Pastor Brian gives an acrostic today. Well, your prayers have been answered because you're getting an acrostic. All right. Luke chapter 10, verse 30 through verse 36 says this. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, uh, they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite, which was a religious leader. When he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now again, just pause real quick. If you know anything about the Jewish culture, Samaritans were despised people. Um, they hated them. They saw them as half-breeds. They saw them as charlatans or heretics. And so Jesus actually using a Samaritan as a positive example of what neighborly kindness looks like would have been deeply disruptive to the, 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 the mindset of these religious leaders. They would have been deeply offended is what I'm trying to say. And he goes on to say, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was and he saw him and he took pity upon him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds and pouring out oil and wine then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn. He took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after them, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have paid. 
Verse 36, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And this is the word of God. Let me pray. Jesus, right now, just let your word um, realign our hearts, our lives to your ways. So we commit ourselves into your care. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So advocate, that's the word I want to look at here today, or advocacy. What does it even mean? Um, in fact, may, maybe some of you don't even know, but this is actually a Bible word. But again, it's one of those words, I would argue, uh, has a wide variety of understanding, especially within our culture. So it's not uncommon for people to be saying, hey, we need to be an advocate. You need to be, an ad- you need to be advocating for uh, anti-racism or need to be advocating for uh, social justice or righteousness or rightness or being an advocate for those that are, that are, that are poor or weak or vulnerable, whatnot. Um, and for the most part, I think that there may be some overlap with regard to the cultural's definition and the biblical definition. But what I want to do, again, my main idea here is not to necessarily spend time di- uh, unpacking or digesting the idea of the cultural version of advocacy, but I want to look at the biblical perspective. So I want to begin just with sort of um, a definition that's kind of standardized, and we'll look at that. So I think we have a definition up here, so there you go. Uh, it's kind of nice to actually have slides again. Uh, we couldn't do that outdoors, so that's one of the fringe benefits of this. So uh, the first definition is one who publicly supports a particular cause or policy. But the one main one that I really want to focus on it's the second section of that, which is a person who pleads uh, on someone else's behalf. A person who pleads or advocates or throws themselves or creates uh, some sort of initiation to help another person. Another way you can think of it is they take upon themselves some form of challenge or pain or hardship um, for the sake or the benefit of somebody else. It's pretty straightforward. Um, but that's kind of the general idea. And this idea actually plays into the biblical perspective that we will begin to see. So, for example, we see throughout Scripture some biblical perspectives. Number one, we see that God actually himself advocates. In fact, that word is actually used in the, the Bible to describe how God acts. So, for example, Psalm 68, verse 5. says so this is the father. It's talking about God. A father to orphans and an advocate for widows uh, is God in his holy dwelling place. So the psalmist identifies God as one that actually advocates for, again, if, if we miss this, orphans and widows. These are the most vulnerable people in the ancient Jewish society. So, again, we, we might not have in our culture orphans and widows as being the least vulnerable, though they may in some cases still be. But the point of the matter is these were the most vulnerable. God cared about those who were most vulnerable. And he's saying that God himself uh, is one that advocates Stands in the gap, stands for those that are the most vulnerable. Secondly, Isaiah chapter 59, verses 15 through 20. says, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. There's our word, mishpat, that we've been looking at, the word justice, over the past several weeks. Verse 16, he says, and he saw that there was no one to advocate. Uh, Another translation that you might have is intercede or intervene. But it's the same idea, same Hebrew word that's actually used there. Uh, Then his own arm brought salvation. He goes on to say, and his righteousness upheld him. So what God's describing is a scenario where the people of Israel, um, when God called the people of Israel, uh, he called them by his name, which basically is a means to say, I I want you to live in a way that is reflective of how I treated you, how I acted towards you. 
And what ended up happening with the children of Israel, which we'll read in just a moment, they, they didn't go that way. In fact, the entire Old Testament is sort of this ongoing story of how the children of Israel did not actually live up to the expectations that God had to love their neighbor, to care for those that are hurting, to have on their mindset those that are the most vulnerable. Uh, in fact, quite to the opposite, uh, the people of Israel uh, over and over again basically framed and created the systems of their society around, you know, rich getting richer and taking advantage of those that were impoverished or poor um, or those that were the most vulnerable among them. And repeatedly, we see that God actually is, is frustrated with the way that the people acted with regard to that. So the rest of the storyline of the Bible is, you know, this big question, what is God going to do with the people of Israel um, and ultimately the world? Because the whole world is, uh, you know, kind of in the same category of not doing what God has asked them to do. So it gives you a little bit of a snapshot in terms of what does God expect? So God creates human beings, but he creates them to be wired and act in a certain way. What happens if human beings do not act in the way that Yahweh God expects or desires? Uh, well, we see that there's a frustration. There's a brokenness in the system. And what ends up happening is that brokenness gets absorbed by those that are the most vulnerable among us. They get uh, shamed. They get attacked. They get taken advantage of. They get crushed. They get oppressed. That's exactly what happens. So the point that I'd make is this in Isaiah, he's describing that he's looking out for the people of Israel and asking, are you taking care of the most vulnerable among you? And God's like, no, you're not. In fact, you're acting like, and he uses this uh, familial language, family-like language to identify Israel. You guys are acting more like Sodom and Gomorrah. Just pause and think about that. So when God uses this language, he says, you're acting like your sister, Sodom. And listen to how he goes on to say this. Verse 17, but he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. But what I, we'll, we'll read that in just a second here of how God describes this. I'm sorry, this, that's in, in Exodus. But the point that he's describing Isaiah, they, they failed. But what God is saying is that in spite of your failure, I will step in and I will advocate. I will put on myself. I will be the one to bring salvation. And listen to how he finishes in verse 20. It says, prophecy, looking to the future. He says, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So God ends with this promise that, yes, I will advocate for the most vulnerable among you, those that are in sin, those that are broken, those that are broken covenant with me. I will advocate for them. And ultimately, he ends with this promise that one day a redeemer will come out of Zion so we see that God himself advocates for justice. Now we're going to take a look at how Israel uh, really broke that relationship with God, oftentimes not reflecting who and what God is like. So we see that oft, uh, Israel oftentimes had advocated not just for justice. There are occasions where they did this, but mostly the storyline is they advocated for injustice. So it's actually possible to not just not advocate for justice, Stand in the gap for those that are, but actually play into the systems that create and perpetuate injustice. And this is exactly what we see with the people of Israel. Listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 48 to 52. This is the passage where he talks about and he relates the people of Israel to Sodom. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as your daughters have done. Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. So listen to how he describes that. He says, the people of Israel uh, are acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
you know, oftentimes, I'm not sure what you think about the sin of Sodom. But right here, Ezekiel tells us, really, the sin of Sodom gets unpacked. The sin of Sodom is that they had pride and they had lots that was given to them. But in the midst of that, they turned the whole system upon themselves and they advocated for unrighteousness and injustice against those that are the most vulnerable among them. And God says, I'm angry about this. I'm frustrated because you're basically turning upside down everything that I've set to be a certain way in this world. Listen how he finishes in verse 52. You have advocated or intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more uh, abominably than they. So in, in the end of this, God basically says, you're actually worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. I've called you to be my people, to be reflective of me in ways that look like me. But instead, you've acted more like the culture around you. Now, just kind of pause and think about this. As followers of Jesus, is it possible for you and I to live in a way that's more consistent with the, the, the morals of society around us than it is Scripture? Totally. I've said this before. San Luis Obispo is awesome. We love it. But the way that we're to live as exiles or people of God in the midst of our culture is to live in such a way where we are in the culture, but we don't act like the culture. And when we begin to act and our actions are more reflective of the culture or Facebook or social media or Instagram or what influencers are constantly saying around us, when that ends up happening and we look less like the heart of God, that's a problem. That's a problem. So we see that Israel actually advocates. So it's possible for us, rather than advocating for justice, to actually advocate for injustice. Uh, listen to how ultimately the last thing we see this uh, in terms of a biblical example, that God himself embodies advocacy through Jesus. Listen how John in the New Testament describes this, First John chapter 2, verse 1. And we'll actually return to this verse in just a moment. He says, my little children, these things I write to you, that you do not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. God advocates on our behalf because we desperately need that. But again, we'll return to that in just a moment. So I want to finish with just a quick um, breakdown of the word gate, certain biblical concepts that will help us to ultimately embody it. And then we'll just finish with some final thoughts. So the word advocate, here we go. We'll unpack this. Number one, A, assess the points of pain and suffering around us. Uh, Listen to how this takes place in the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verse 33, it says this. When he saw, did you catch that little phrase? When he saw, it meant he was observant. Are you and I observant? Are we aware of the points of pain? Do we even know? Are we even aware of the points of pain around us in our neighborhood? The people that live directly close to us, maybe within 100 feet of our lives. Do we even know, if you're married, do we even know the points of pain that your spouse is going through? Are you even aware of that? We cannot love somebody for whom we know nothing about. And if we're going to embody this, we have to, first of all, begin with this sense of assessing, asking those questions, becoming familiar. That's exactly what the Good Samaritan does. He says, when he saw, then he took pity. This order of it, beginning to see, aware. And look, I'll just, I'll say this. If you have a hard time having a sense of compassion, the word pity can be, it's kind of an older word for compassion. 
if you lack compassion for people around you that are suffering, all I would ask you to do is just pray, God, give me a heart that's like yours. Help me to be able to see people the way that you see people. And, and keep praying that until your heart begins to break for other people. And, and you may need to pray that every single day, moments throughout the day, multiple times throughout the day, over and over and over again. I mean, if you really want a, the most simplistic place to begin, if you've got roommates, if you're in a family, begin to ask God, God, show me the points of pain, the hardship or difficulty in those that are just within my proximity. Open my eyes. Give me a soft heart. Secondly, D, devote energy to helping the weak, suffering, and or marginalized. This is what we see in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, about the Good Samaritan. It says that he went and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he went and took the man and put him on his donkey and takes him to an inn. Uh, his actions were very clear. It was all about doing something for this guy. So what happens if you're like, hey, be warm, be filled, and have a wonderful day, and I'll pray for you, bro, in the midst of your horrible life. And you do nothing to help him. You know that you have the means or the ability to help them. Uh, those reveal the inconsistencies in our lives. So number one, assess. Number two, devote. Number three, or V, uh, voice the gospel. And I think it's important to acknowledge that this is what the church, God's community, are called to. I've heard people in this moment say, the gospel is not enough. We need more than the gospel to be able to empathize with people. And I would, I would push back gently and say, I get I think what you're saying is that you're saying that a gospel that's ultimately devoid of action is, is hollow. I get it. That's true. But it be, it's not less than a gospel. It's not less than preaching, communicating, speaking forth the gospel. And I've asked you guys this over the past few weeks. Like, Think about your gospel fluency. How fluent are you in the gospel? Can you articulate what the gospel is to people? Do you know how to be able to convey or communicate to somebody that maybe has questions? Like, what is the gospel? Are you able to verbalize and to voice and speak to them? And the gospel is God stepping into this world of brokenness and sin and rebellion and taking upon himself all of that brokenness, sin and rebellion. And the results or consequences that it brings for us. And he gives us life. He liberates us. He frees us from our sin, guilt, and shame. He's the one that does all this for us. He advocates on our behalf just like John said that we just read. But that comes through voicing and vocalizing. And I think this is important because many of the ills and the oppressions that are current within our culture around us actually have ills and oppression that are beneath those ills and oppression, which social programs are good. But beneath the social programs, unless it gets to the heart of the matter, which is the sinful proclivities that are there, um, if you just simply guilt people into posting a black square because that's the woke thing to do, has your heart really changed? Without actually having a heart that loves, it's totally possible. And what changes your heart? The gospel. To the degree that you understand that in spite of your brokenness and your sinfulness and your proclivities that are towards evil, constantly... God has loved you in Christ. And he's want, he wants to transform us and change us. To the degree that we receive that, that transforms us so that now we become the type of people that aren't just like playing games or trying to throw out the certain types of activities uh, that are part of the new canon of secular scriptures that you must do this, otherwise you're not saved or accepted or loved or cared for. To the degree we understand the gospel, 
it makes it a different type of person. Importance of the gospel is interwoven throughout. So number one, A, assess. D, devote. V, voice the gospel. O, oppose injustice. Oppose injustice. We see God doing this, opposing injustice. The cross was not just God allowing injustice to do to him what injustice does, but was his also way of basically saying, look how wicked this is. This is the best that Rome and Caiaphas and religion has to offer, death. And it was in that, it was a protest, I believe, at the same time. is a way of saying, this is evil. Look at the evil of the crucifixion. It's a protest against it. Which brings me to the subject of, what does it look like to do that in a way that honors Jesus? I had written this to someone a couple of days ago, so I'll just read you what I had written. For a Christian who's called to embody the life, a life that's reflective of the certain amount, to ever answer racial prejudice or discrimination or any form of injustice with chaos, intimidation, or violence is ultimately a betrayal of the way of Jesus. Let me read, read that again. A Christian called to embody the ethos of the Sermon on the Mount who responds to injustice with chaos, intimidation, or violence betrays the way of Jesus. We're called to do things differently. So even voices that may be well-intentioned within the broader culture that are wanting to fight and resist racial inequality or evil within our culture, whether, as I've mentioned before, du jour or de facto, systems that are there in place, whether by law and legislation or by way of just popular decision uh, within the culture at large, to answer those things with violence, intimidation, anger, forcing people into actions or activities that are not necessarily coming out of a heart of love. That form of activity is, does not represent, reflect the way of Jesus. So I would just suggest for the culture to act that way, that's one thing. For Christians to say, that's how I act, or that's what I endorse is it's okay i would suggest it's not in the way of jesus it's actually a betrayal of the heart of jesus christians are called to a different standard of what it looks like to embody to absorb pain in some cases even suffer loss so that we through our actions can demonstrate the love of jesus so yes we're called to oppose injustice very much so but there's a way to oppose injustice that's secular and only leads to more death and destruction and brokenness and more oppression. And then there's a way that actually leads to true freedom. And the gospel is about freedom, not more oppression in different forms. Um, last, uh, thirdly, or fourthly, uh, in the sea, we're told to uh, care for all. Now, I added here uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, where so, it says this, So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those that are of the household of faith. The idea is do good to all people, all humanity. It doesn't matter who they are, whether they're your neighbor, your friend, in your people group, your coworker, or even, this is where it gets really tough, your enemy. But especially, Paul says, those that are in the household of faith. So what does it look like for you? To embody that, you and I, uh, look around. There's a lot, a lot of people here. And on Sunday mornings, we've had a lot of new people that have been coming. It's been awesome. And we have a large online audience that are just tuning in. So there might not be a whole lot of people that you're looking around within your neighborhood or within your living room right now. But the point of the matter is, especially if they're part of the household of faith, what does that mean to truly take care of each other's needs? 
I think it begins by having a relationship with people, getting to know people's names. You can start there. You know, sometimes people may come to church communities and are like, I walked in there and I was expecting people to say hi to me and ask me my name, ask me about my life, and they didn't. And the fact of the matter is, is sometimes I, I, I would suggest that what God's inviting us to is to be those type of people. That if you're looking for that, then my invitation to you would be to maybe be that person that asks people's names. Do to others what you are wanting to have done to you. And I think what you will find is a more healthy, balanced way in which the church can actually do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. Um, number of, well, I don't know, I've lost the number. Letter A, going back to A, act holy. Uh, again, this I think is an important aspect of what it means to really be an advocate. Act holy. What does this mean? God calls his people to live in a certain way that is reflective of his morals, of his, uh, his nature. And when the people of Israel acted unholy, acted in a way that's not consistent with the nature of God, they just picked up and absorbed the cultural values and norms around them. That's why I would say, unless you are constantly fighting in your spiritual walk to be a holy person, you will likely pick up the characteristic traits of the culture without even thinking about it. You will just absorb it. It's why the Christian faith is always described as a battle that we fight uh, constantly, ruthlessly to be people that are like Jesus, moving towards that direction. So act holy, as First Peter says, but I am the one who has called you to be holy, so you also be holy in your conduct. And as we do that, I believe what will end up happening, we will begin to love God rightly, then we will begin to love our neighbor rightly, because that's what it looks like to be holy ultimately. Uh, the letter T. Uh, turn hearts towards righteousness. Look, at the end of the day, the ideas that we think about with regard to justice or equality or harmony within our culture has to be undergirded by a narrative. Has to be undergirded by, the narr- by a narrative. And what I would suggest to you, that unless that narrative finds itself in the Judeo-Christian story of the gospel of a God that himself is holy and just and righteous and good and invites his people to be holy, righteous, just, and good. Then what we're simply doing is we're building our future on a narrative that is not strong enough. In other words, it has an expiration date. The fine print basically says it will spoil at some point, but the gospel points us to this reality that will never come to an end. And so what the end of the book of Daniel describes Listen to what he says. And many of those who will sleep in the dust is referring to what we know as the resurrection, the final resurrection, uh, which Jesus is sort of the first of all of that. He says, some will awake to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. And he says, but those who turn many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. You know what that means? It means that those that live their lives to point people to Jesus, this is the most simplistic way I can say it, there's a radiance about them. Have you noticed that? Have you discovered that? Have you met somebody? Maybe it's your grandma. Maybe it's your mom. Somebody that you know that just, there's something about them. They glow. They're radiant. They love Jesus. There's, there's a depth. There's a base note to their life that's deeper than just simply the tinny sound of the rest of the culture around them. Why? Because their hearts are connected to God and they're seeking to lead others to righteousness. And we're told that those people will shine brightly. There's a radiance about them. And then lastly, uh, in the word advocate, your acrostic that I've lovingly given to you guys. Embody the gospel. Embody the gospel. 
Again, the gospel is something to not just simply be preached. It is to be that. It's not less than that. But it's also to be embodied. Again, I want to go back to First uh, John in just a second here. But listen to what Martin Luther, uh, the great uh, reformer, described. He said this, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. It's not your good works that save you. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor certainly does. I mean, think about that. Luther was just pithy. He was awesome, bold, courageous. But the point of the matter is, is this is what we're talking about, good works. Doing good works, not to earn God's favor, not to somehow get merit from God, but because hearts that are transformed by the presence of God see it as their mission in life to demonstrate God's goodness everywhere they go. Brian Zahn, the pastor, says this, and I love this. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. It's not so much the task of the church to change the world as it is to be the world already changed by Christ. Listen to it again. It's not so much the task of the church to change the world as it is to be the world already changed by Christ. So what happens if you and I act in such a way that reflects the change that Jesus has already brought forth in this world? I think we will create a culture and a context that's very attractive and beautiful. Do you know what that means? Nobody will be shoved off in the margins or forgotten or isolated or mistreated or taken advantage of because as we exhibit the world of change that's already begun in, in Jesus, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. We will live in such a way that's not discriminating against anybody. But it's welcoming all people and pointing people back to the beauty of Jesus and not building our lives on the flimsy foundations of our secularized culture, but building our lives on the eternal foundation that Jesus himself has brought forth through the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, as scripture repeatedly tells us. And this is what we're invited into. And as we close, I want for us to go back to the, the teaching in First John and listen to it again. First John chapter 2, verse 1. In fact, Joseph, why don't you come on up and we'll finish with a song. And we will, I think we got communion stuff. So we're going to do communion today. Thanks, guys. Uh, and we will respond by worshiping God together by partaking of communion. In fact, if you guys would like, you can all stand up with us. Um, and I just want you to listen to this passage as we come to a close. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says this. My little children, these things I write to you, that you do not sin or continue in these habits or patterns of sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. What this passage tells us very clearly is that you and I, in the midst of our unrighteousness and our injustices and our violation of the very nature and character of God consistently, not just once or twice, but we have not only been people that may or may not have been oppressed and broken, but we have contributed to the oppression and the brokenness of other people. Maybe knowingly or unknowingly, but the way that God seeks to bring about resolve in this is sending Jesus. So what it means to respond to Jesus is to turn our hearts towards him. And as a church, to really seek to embody this, 
It's one of the reasons why I would say very clearly, loudly and clearly, that there are those within our church community that may have varying degrees of more involvement in studying and researching and thinking and prayerfully considering these ideas of racial inequalities and injustice in our culture and our world today. But any form of oppression or coercion or guilting or shaming others into activity is actually a work of the flesh and brings about more anxiety and oppression. There's a different way. And the way is to say, let's be like Jesus. And it's going to look like you and I in this room. Getting together with Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want to be like you. Shape my heart so it's like you. It's going to look different for every one of our lives. So the well-intentioned advocates out there that are bringing coercion and oppression and a sense of weightiness in which you've constantly failed. You've not lived up to the standard. As well-intentioned as they are, and as paternalistic as it comes across, it's actually not helpful. What is needed, though, is a new heart. And this is exactly what Jesus provides. To the degree that you see that God has stepped into this world, take upon himself the effects and the consequences of sin and rebellion. Yours. And he's liberated you. He's given you life. You didn't deserve it. But he loves you. Makes you a different type of person. Transforms your heart. So that when you look at people that are broken or marginalized or don't get it or not woke or not acting in standards and ways that are consistent with the world around you don't look at them with condemnation and contempt. Holy cow, not at all. That's just the, another form of fundamentalism. It's just, the, it's just the left version of fundamentalism to the right version of fundamentalism that was constantly all around the culture during the 80s and 90s, maybe early 2000s. It's just the exact same thing. And it does not change hearts. Jesus changes hearts. So as we go to the place of sitting at the table and receiving the bread and the cup, as they hand those out, if you'd like, you're more than welcome to grab one. If you feel like your heart is maybe not in the right place uh, to receive, to respond, there's no coercion. Please don't feel the need to do that. But if your heart is saying, God, I want you. I want to be like you. I want to live the way of Jesus. Uh, grab the cup. And again, like I said before, the little fine cracker thing is on the top. So just make sure you pay attention to it. So we're going to sing a song. As soon as the song is over, we're going to say goodbye to our online audience. And I've said this before, uh, that as we gather on Sunday mornings, we invite you, online friends, family, uh, come join us uh, to worship together. If you maybe have uh, a need to be at home, then please continue to stay at home and feel freedom to worship Jesus in the comfort of your home. But if you don't necessarily have that and you just like to join us, you've gotten comfortable and consistent being on your couch, which is great. No no judgment here. Uh, We invite you to come join us uh, to be part of what's happening here as God's doing something fresh and new. So let me pray. We'll sing and we'll partake together. Jesus, thank you for the cross. You've transformed us. You've made us new. We want to live as a community of people that reflects the newness that Jesus, you brought forth. 